We are in part three of a four-part series we are calling Binary. Binary. We're learning about how to be faithful in a world full of flakes. When the world around us is inconsistent, we as the people of God should be consistent. When people around us are not dependable, we as the people of God should be dependable. Why? We learned last week that the world bases their decisions on how they feel in the moment. Uh, I guess I'll go if I feel like it. I guess I'll hang out if I feel like it. Uh, I don't want to do that because I don't feel good. But the church should be basing their decisions upon the will of God. Why? Well, let's see. Atheists, they don't have a God to consult about their feelings. They're not looking up in the sky and saying, huh, I wonder, atheist God out there. There is no atheist God. They're, they have no one to pray to. So if we say that there's a God who guides our lives, shouldn't we be asking him his opinion on what we should be doing? In the first week, we, turned, we learned about the reason why we're committing, the motivation to commit comes from the fact that Jesus was so committed to us despite unfavorable circumstances. He wasn't staring at the cross and like, you know, I'm going to plan to go and see how I feel. He said, despite, despite the shame, despite the bruises, the chastising, all those things, he went to the cross for you and I. And that should inspire us that through the momentary affliction, momentary circumstances, we can commit to each other to die to self and to follow Jesus. And so tonight, we're going to learn about the freedom in no. That's the title of our message. Last week, we learned about the joy in yes. We can joyfully say yes to God. But tonight, we're going to learn about the freedom in saying no. The freedom in saying no. John chapter 4, we're going to look at a familiar passage, verses 31 through 34. Jesus, remember, met the woman at the well. And as he did, he broke all kinds of barriers, a racial barrier, Samaritans, and you are a Jew. He broke uh, all different types of barriers in order to reach this woman who was an, a social outcast, a person that no one would want to talk to, but Jesus saw this a woman as valuable. And after he did that, he said this, or it says in verse 31, in the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, which means teacher, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Lord, we pray that you go before this message, that you would be in every word, that you would pierce every heart, that you would convict us, but also show us the hope that's found in you, Lord, that we can make commitments, make decisions, have a process of elimination that brings us a little bit closer to what you have planned, to deny ourselves and follow you. Guide us by your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Ladies and gentlemen, what are you living for? Why are you alive? You ever ask yourself such deep questions? 
Why am I put on this earth? What is my purpose? Maybe you're not like me. You don't ask yourself that question every single day. As you get older, I think you start wondering, why am I investing so much time in school? Why am I spending so much time with this person? You start wondering questions. People can't live without reasons for doing things. Just think about any conversation you've ever had with your parents. Why? I want you to clean your room. I want you. I was talking about this with Joe Fisher the other day. Why do we make our beds? Why? There is no purpose. There is no rationale behind it. Just make your bed because if you make your bed, you're going to make a great husband. <laughs> There's no logic to that. You're just told to do it. And it drives us nuts. Why? Because all of us want reasons for the things that we do. How much more when we are living our lives, we want to know, why was I put on this earth? What is the sole purpose that I, for which I exist? And here Jesus, in this passage, has something really interesting. He's having a conversation with his disciples after he has this long, great conversation, evangelizes, shares the good news with this woman who was an outcast, was sleeping around, no one wanted to be around her. And then after that, Jesus, so filled with joy, his disciples find him and are like, hey, did you, did you find something to eat? And he says, I got food that you don't even know about. Obviously, he was talking about, I'm just so fulfilled by what I just did, right? And the disciples are just like scratching their heads like, they never got it. Look at the Gospels. They never understood what Jesus was saying. Like, um, did someone feed him? So while we weren't looking, they're just like spoons just going like, here comes the choo-choo train. And just goes in. Choo-choo trains make that noise. And Jesus says this. What? He says in verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Okay, pay attention. This is really, really important. This is gonna set the tone for everything that we're talking about this evening. What Jesus is doing is neglecting one of the most vital and wholesome activities in life to embrace a greater good, the Father's will. What Jesus is doing right here is he's saying, Food is important. Food is necessary. In other words, if you don't eat food, you're going to die. But you need to understand that the will of God, why do you eat food? Why are you living your life? Is more important than the food itself. Could you live apart from God's will? Many of us understand that if you don't eat food, you will die. But how many of us are living our lives in such of a way that if we were not getting direction from God, we would not be able to function? Are we so dependent on God and his every word, his every single scripture that he gives us every single morning, every single day when we're at church? Are we, do we have such a relationship with God that we need him to speak, otherwise we will die? We're dependent on him for our next move. This is why in Deuteronomy in chapter eight, verse three, it says, God humbled you, the people of Israel, allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. So 
This is really interesting. If you look at the Bible, a lot of people look at it and are like, oh, it's all just kind of like, it's a story. It didn't actually really happen. But what's really cool is the fact that God, since he's the ultimate divine author, he wrote the book using real life situations, but still illustrating certain points. Like when you, you and I make up things in stories, fiction and stuff, we have this, uh, we have characters' names, we have different things, symbols that will include in a story to illustrate a point. And God does that too, except it really does happen in real life. And so when he brought the people of Israel out of Egypt, he fed them manna from heaven. That was their daily food. Manna literally means, what is it? They had no idea what it was. But daily, they were given their food from heaven. God was providing for them each and every day. Why did he do that? Couldn't he have just allowed them to grow crops? Well, I guess they were kind of moving all the time, so maybe not. Couldn't he have done some other things so they could have cultivated themselves? He did it for one reason and one reason only, and that is to illustrate that just as the people of Israel needed God to survive each and every day, depending on fresh manna from heaven, they didn't have any guarantee that the manna would come tomorrow, except by the word of the Lord. That we have to trust each and every day that God will give us fresh direction from heaven. Do you believe that God can give you fresh direction every single day or just once a week on a Sunday? Do you believe that God can speak to your heart every single day or maybe just once in a while when you have a religious epiphany? And what God wants us to realize is that the will, the will of the Lord and the word of God should be more essential to us than anything else. More essential than food itself. And that's what Jesus is saying. Neglecting food in the moment to say, this is more important that I do the Father's will. And what we need to realize in relating this to the message is that when we say yes to God's will, it will mean saying no to whatever is contrary. Whatever's contrary, even good essential things. When you are selling a car, maybe you haven't had that experience yet because most of you are under the age of 18, 17, you haven't had to sell a car. But when you sell a car or you're buying a car, the person says yes to you and no to everybody else who wants to buy the car. If you're getting married one day, you're saying yes to the person you wanna marry and no to everybody else. You gotta say no to whatever is contrary. How many of you, when you were little, weren't allowed to drink coffee? It sounds like a demonic thing, doesn't it? Your parents didn't allow you to drink coffee. Why? Well, probably, number one, you're probably too hyper to begin with. And number two, they would always say what? You'll stunt your growth. That's what you hear when you're little. And that's why I wasn't allowed to have coffee. And I guess if that's true, I'd be thankful that my parents said no to coffee, but yes to growth. So I wouldn't be short. Many of us may have a decision we're not happy about. I remember when I was in high school, well, coming out of eighth grade, going into high school, all my friends were going to Christian school and I had to go to public school. All my friends, I went to Christian school in eighth grade, up till eighth grade, went to Cornerstone Christian School and I was gonna go to Timothy, except my parents said, now it's time for you to share your faith in a public school setting. And I was completely against that. All my friends are going one place. I don't know anyone who's going to Old Ridge High School. But I'm glad, in hindsight, that decision wasn't for everybody. 
But in hindsight, I can see that they were listening to the will of God and willing to say no to some good essential thing. Christian education, essential to our lives, but it didn't have to come from there. They said yes to one thing and said no to another thing. Here's the first point of what we need to realize tonight. Saying yes to God means saying no to some good things. Saying yes to God means saying no to some good things. That's pretty obvious about bad things, right? But not so obvious about good things in our lives. Let me prove it. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, after you have the Hall of Faith chapter, you know, the whole thing about like, you know, faith is the substantiating of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. He lists all these different people that shown faith. He says, now they're surrounded by all these people that have great faith. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Visualize a stadium. All these crowds of people all looking upon you as you're about to run your race. And he says, let's run it with all of our ability, laying aside every, every weight and the sin. He doesn't put those two things together. He doesn't say, let's let go of all the sin. He says, anything that's going to hold you back from running with all of your might. I got lunch with a friend the other day, and he was telling me about how he cut sugar completely out of his diet. Ironic, because he works at Rita's. It's really sad. It's got to be torture for him. So he said that the reason why he cut out sugar, which is a good, godly, amazing thing that God has put in Rita's, he did that because he noticed, since he has some issues with anxiety, he is less anxious when he has less sugar. So he cut out a good thing called sugar to embrace something better. Many of us, and I hear this all the time, you embrace a good thing called work, but you put it above the priority, which is fellowship with other believers in God. People say, oh, listen, I know, like, I know I have to be back at church, but, like, I have to work. And work is a good thing. Yes, it's a good thing. I'm not saying that there aren't some Sundays you, you'll miss and some Fridays you'll miss because of work. But between you and the Lord, are you taking a good thing and it suddenly is becoming a bad thing because it's getting in the way of what God wants for your life? And so what do you do when, you're, when a boss comes to you and says, I want you to work every single day of your life, which a boss will never ask you. But we sign up, don't we? Yeah, my availability is always, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. Sports, is sports a good thing? Yes. Can it become a bad thing? Yes. In fact, any good thing, I've heard a pastor say he's going to teach us in, in a couple of weeks on a Wednesday, Skip Heitzik, he said, a good thing can become a bad thing if it keeps you from the best thing. We can have great things in our lives. Sports, amazing. Now, some people don't call rock climbing a sport. I think it's a sport. It's going to be in Olympics in 2020. I'm being it. It's going to be awesome. Uh, that was a joke. But even a good thing like sports, physical, physical exercise, if it takes the place of God or moves you out of the will of God for your life, it can become an obstacle to God. This is why Paul in Philippians chapter 3 says, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, 
forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to the things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He says, I'm not like, listen, there are good things in my life, good things in my past, bad things in my past. All those things I'm putting behind me and I'm looking forward. So let me ask you, what things, even good things, are getting in the way of God's will for your life? What things are getting in the way of God's will for your life? Well, maybe the question's popping up in your mind. Well, how would I know? How would I know if that thing has begun to become, uh, become an obstacle between me and God? I'll give you four ways to determine whether a good thing has become a bad thing. Number one, whose glory am I seeking? Whose glory am I seeking? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 says, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. All these things, even the most base, essential things in our lives can be done in a glorifying way to God. So ask yourself, when I am participating in this activity, when I am adopting this thing or valuing this thing, is it for my own glory or is it for the glory of God? The question that you will come across as you are a teenager's especially for the ladies, sometimes for the guys, is how do I know whether or not the thing I'm wearing is appropriate? Well, here's the problem. A lot of times people are asking the wrong question. They're like, ah, well, they're wearing it, so I guess I can wear it too. Rather than asking, who am I glorifying? And the problem with that is what? All of you are like, well, that's ridiculous because no one thinks about glorifying God in their clothing except the really weird dude that has the fish symbol, has the fish hat, and says Jesus loves me all the time on their shirts. No one thinks about glorifying God in the clothing. Exactly. And this is the point. It's not so much, are you thinking about like, as you put on your t-shirt, like, God, this is going to give you the glory. Oh, man, I wish I had this quote. This is a great quote. It's by John Piper. I don't remember off the top of my head. But something like, Clothes are not supposed to draw your attention to what's underneath. Clothes are supposed to draw your attention to what is seen, the hands that serve the body of Christ, the feet that bring forth the gospel. It's actually the clothes that are supposed to give highlights to the other more prominent parts of your body, not allude to what's underneath it. And so that's how you can wear your clothes to the glory of God. It's by not thinking about whether or not you're stumbling people at all. It's just thinking about other things so that you're focused on the Lord and you're not focused on your clothing. And if a person brings up to you like, hey man, I don't know if you're allowed to wear that, then just be willing to listen. But oftentimes what happens is people want to justify what they're wearing, what they're doing, because it's a sensitive issue. Because people use it to glorify themselves, draw attention to themselves, so that people think about them. Now, just really quickly on that, everyone has different standards as what's stumbling, what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. So we're not going to judge anyone, look at anyone differently, but each and every one of us should be looking inside of our hearts saying, can I wear something that's going to be glorifying the Lord and not glorifying people or directing people's attention to myself? Number two, is it an idol in my life? 
is this thing an idol in my life? Leviticus chapter 19 verse 4 says, Do not turn to idols, nor make for yourselves molded gods, for I am the Lord your God. Well, how do you know if something's an idol? An idol is obviously anything you worship other than God. So how do you know if it's an idol? I'm glad you asked. I'm loving this conversation we're having. Number one, what consumes your thought life? What do you think about when you're laying down at night, about to go to bed, daydreaming throughout the day? What is the thing that consumes your thoughts? And that might give you a hint as to what might be the thing that you worship. Number two, does it dictate your mood on a daily basis? Whether this thing is valued or not valued, and that determines how you feel. Maybe your idol is body image. And depending on how people view you or how many likes you get on Instagram or how many people respond to certain things or give you compliments, that's how your mood is either you're happy or you're down and depressed based on what people think about you. Maybe your idol could be a sport and depending on how you win or how you lose dictates not just your day but your week. And you've seen people like that, right? Like they don't even play on the team, they're old, they're in their 60s or something. And like, that's not that old, just in case anyone's 60. But like you watch people, their favorite sports team loses and their month is ruined. Now I'm not saying that those people are automatically idolatrous, but it should cause us to question whether or not this thing is an idol. Because here's the thing about idols, you see all throughout the Old Testament. Now idols usually were like golden images, bronze, whatever. And whenever the idol was failing, they would try to save it. Like there's that one story with Gideon, you know, the whole idol falls over and stuff and like they try to pick it back up and save the idol. And we try to save the thing that we value because that's the thing that we worship. That's the thing that gives us value. And that's why God mocks us. Like, why do you have to save your God? Why does your God need saving? And thirdly, I would say this. How would you feel if that thing was taken away from you? Would you even know who you are if that relationship was taken away from you? I heard a pastor once say, the way you determine whether or not something has become an idol is by, if it's taken away from you, are you devastated? And I remember saying the exact words about music, like the day before, and I said like, man, if God asked me to work a nine to five office job, I would do it, but I would be devastated. And so I heard the message the next day and I went, oh no. No, it's like your worst nightmare. You're like blocking out your mind as you listen to messages. Like, it's not that, it's not that. I know it's not that. And then you hear those words. It's like, oh my gosh, I think my idol is music. And you're just convicted to the heart. Number three, I would say this. Four ways to determine if a good thing has become bad. Is it taking me away from the fellowship of believers? Are you noticing that in your participation in this thing or value of this thing, it's actually removing you from believers. Maybe perhaps it offends, it offends the believers. Or maybe you're just spending so much time invested in your work, invested in your activity, that it removes you from fellowship altogether. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 25 says, Let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Fourthly and finally, is it something that is contrary 
to God's revealed will in Scripture. Is it something that's contrary to God's revealed will in Scripture? Because if it opposes the Word of God, then maybe it's not a good thing at all. Maybe it's actually a bad thing. So here's the second heading under the things we need to know tonight. First one was, saying yes to God means saying no to some good things. Second point is, saying yes to God means saying no to some bad things. Bad things. I'm going to give you three bad things that we need to say no to when embracing the will of God for our lives. Number one is the worldly mindset. Worldly mindset or worldly values. We see in Romans chapter 8, verse 5 and 8, 5 through 8, it says, Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Worldly mindset, worldly values. A lot of us are adopting this mindset of the world and we're thinking about not building God's kingdom, we're thinking about building our kingdom. We're thinking about our own thing. We're consumed with our idols, consumed with things that are distracting us from God's will. And because of that, we're thinking about how to serve our idols, not how to serve our God. So now all of your life is consumed by how do I achieve the success that I'm looking for? How do I achieve the relationship I'm looking for? How do I achieve the worth that I desire from other people? And you're sacrificing, you're bending over backwards to obtain the thing that you really want. That's your entire mindset. And that's why your mood is dictated by what people think about your idols. And that's why you'll defend your idols against other idols. Like sports is the most important thing. Music is the most important thing. I'm just using sports because it's the illustration I'm thinking of. It could be literally anything. Your work, your job. It could be video games. It could literally be anything that you make that is not God. People think about money all the time. And because of that, they'll work themselves to death, neglect their families, neglect their friends, because the most important thing to them is making money. And so because of that, your whole mindset is warped. And that's why you can't rationalize with them. You're like, hey, listen, you want to like, like hang out this weekend? Or like, I can't. Why not? I just can't, man, because it's a really important game this weekend. It's a really important job that I need to take. If I miss this opportunity, I may never have another opportunity again. It's because you've bought into the world's way of thinking and not adopted God's. Number two, worldly temptations. Worldly temptations are things that we have to say no to. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4 says, God has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. I love that. What he's saying there is because you've embraced the promises of God, you've been able to escape the sinful desires of the world. And many of us don't think in those terms. We just think about running away from lust or temptation and not thinking about embracing God's promises. So where are you going when you're running away from your lust? When you're running away from temptations? 
oftentimes people are just thinking about repressing their desires rather than surrendering their, their, their desires. Giving it over to the Lord and asking, Lord, why do I want this thing? Why am I tempted by this thing? Remembering that God is holding out some better promises that we can always embrace. Here's what you need to know. Anytime God says no to something in the Bible, it's because he's already said yes to something else. That's what my youth pastor taught me. When God says no to sex outside of marriage, it's because he says yes to sex inside marriage. Why does he say no to these things? Why does he say to deny yourself? It's so that you can embrace God. You can take up your cross and follow him. It's so you can be selfless to other people. God isn't a Debbie Downer. He's like God doesn't want you to experience any kind of fun in this life or whatever. It's so that he wants you to live life to the full. I have come that they might have joy in that more abundantly, he says in John 10.10. 10. And it's, it's important to remember that Jesus, when he was tempted, that was prior to him starting his ministry. Maybe you feel like God doesn't have any promises for you. God doesn't have a call on your life. And what you need to know is the temptation precedes the ministry. And God is honing you in the desert so he can use you in the city with people, with other people around you that you can be a blessing to. Thirdly, we need to say no to worldly influences. Worldly influences. Philippians chapter four, verse eight says, brethren, whatever things are true, noble, just, pure, lovely, good report, if there's any virtue, anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. He doesn't say whatever's carnal, whatever's lustful, Whatever is a bad report, think about those things. Yet, a lot of us adopt all the different things that the world wants to tell us through music, through TV shows. I'm convinced of this day. <laughs> I'm convinced of this day. The things that have ruined my relationships with women more than anything else was listening to sappy emo music when I was a teenager. When you watch those movies, it's like the romance movies, it's like, just be the best friend. Eventually the girls just be like, oh, and you're the person that I've longed to be with all of my life. It's a trap. Don't believe it. All of us want to believe it. It's like, yeah, that sounds great. Like she's going to realize that guy's a jerk and she doesn't want to be with him. And then she'll like, she'll like look at me differently. And then it'll just be, well, no, well, no. And you're like holding off for hope. It doesn't happen. This world is sinful and cruel. And yet we allow the world to tell us what to believe. And it's not just... TV, it's not just music. Sometimes it's certain relationships. You go to parties with your friends and you know you shouldn't be there. But you think, ah, you know, it's, it's really not that bad and I'm not really influenced. More than anything else, I hear people saying, I listen to the music for the beat, not for the words. Well, guess what? That is a complete insult to the artist. Complete insult. If I heard, like, I was making music and people were like, oh, I hate the whole stuff that you wrote about God and all the things you're passionate about, like, I like the beat. I'd be like, well, stop listening to my music. That's an insult to the person. But more than that, we know deep down inside, we don't want to just know the piece of art. We want to know the artist. We want to know the life of the person that has made this art. It's true with anything. If you really, really appreciate art, you want to know what caused the person to create this work of art. And so your research, your favorite artist, it's not like you just listen to one song, you listen to all their albums, 
all their songs, you buy their posters, you buy their, what, you buy CDs, and no one even has a CD player. But you're like, that's how dedicated I am. You buy vinyl, and you're like, you have to buy a record player to listen to your favorite band's vinyl records. And some of you have to figure out what vinyl is still. But you do that, why? Because you want to know the person that was so compelled that they would write the song in this way. Well, if you look at the lyrics of half of these songs that we're listening to, like I listen, I listened to some of the things I listened to when I was even 20. I thought like it wasn't that bad because it like wasn't really, the curse words were never like sexual or anything. It was just like they would say the S word or say the D word. And it's not that bad. I'm like, how did I ever listen to this? This is so not edifying. And God has, you know, I'm not saying that to convict anyone just because you listen to music that curses. What I am saying is we need to ask ourselves, who is influencing us? Is it God or is it the world? Now, now that we've gone through those two points, saying yes means saying no to some good things and some bad things. Here are some reasons why people don't say no. Reasons why people don't say no. Number one, I would say this. People are people pleasers. People pleasers. That's what you become. Why don't you turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 32. Give your thumbs some exercise this evening. I sent another message by another pastor like two weeks ago, and he had us turn in our Bibles after he had, like, had an opening passage. And I was like, I can't remember the last time I had like a cross-reference where I told people to turn in their Bibles. Because usually I feel like people just get lost if you do it too many times, and like I just haven't done that. So I think it's helpful if we all turn there for a second. Exodus chapter 32 Look at verses 21 through 24 with me. This is like one of the funniest stories, by the way. I mean, it's, it's tragic. People die and stuff, but it's pretty funny. Because, uh, I mean, think about this. Moses goes up to meet with the Lord. He's going to get the Ten Commandments and know exactly what God's will is for the, for the lives of the Israelites and God's people in general. It's like, I want to know God's will. I'm going to the mountain. I'll be right back. He goes, and everyone's like, well... We don't know what happened, so let's make a golden calf. Moses comes back, he's like, what are you guys doing? He's like, well, we didn't know how long you were going to be gone, so we just kept ourselves busy, and here's this thing that we're worshiping. It's like, are you serious? Why a cow? Of all, like, I would make a dragon. I would make something, something cool. Like, maybe like a giant, or I could think of a lot, of, but you didn't make a calf. And that's what they worship. It's terrible. Verse 21. Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? So Aaron said, do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. He's like, calm down. It's like, don't you hate it when people say that? You're like so mad and like, are you, are you angry? Are you upset? It's like you're mocking them. Do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people that they are sounded evil. He just like blames them right away. I know the people, they're just evil people. For they said to me, make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who has brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And I said to them, whoever has gold, let, let them break it off. So they gave it to me, and I cast it into the fire, and this calf came out. <laughs> yes. So you put the gold in the fire, and out came a cow. That's how it happened. I believe you. What really happened is Aaron was pressured by the people, and because he's pressured by the people to make this golden calf, he said, ah, yeah, I guess so. I guess we can do that in the meantime. 
So he was pleasing the people. Moses comes back and he changes the story to please Moses. I mean, Aaron cannot make up his mind as to whom he wants to please. And by doing it, he pleases neither. All of us know what that's like. You're in an argument, you and your friend, and you have the one mediator who's completely Switzerland. He says, like, you're looking at him like, he's on my side. I know he's on my side. And you're like, buddy, like, just tell him. Tell him how you feel. And they're like, I'm staying out of it. And he's just like, I hate you. I hate you so much in this moment. Because if they would just say one thing, you'd be able to own the argument. And they just don't. Nobody likes that guy. Don't be that guy. I guess that's like the right thing to do in that situation. You don't, don't argue and stuff, but you get the point. Aaron's not a good guy in this. Question is, who are we serving? We need to choose a side, maybe not with friends, but if it comes to serving God, you definitely need to choose a side because Jesus himself said, if you are not for me, you are against me. There is no middle. There is no Switzerland. There is no being neutral. You got to choose which side you are going to worship. This is why in James chapter 2, it talks about, well, we don't have to go through that passage. Basically, James is addressing this whole, like, favoritism thing. People are walking into church, and they see people walking in with gold and fine apparel, and like, hey, you should sit here. It's a great seat. And then the person who's poor, like, eh, you can sit wherever you want. He's like, why are you doing that? God doesn't have favorites, and what are you communicating to the poor person that walks in your church? You're saying that in order to be accepted by God, you have to look a certain way, dress a certain way, or be a certain social status. Now, their motivation for doing that is because they believe by treating some people well, that will give them an advantage in life. And by neglecting certain people, it doesn't really affect their lives. And we are not to be people pleasers. In other words, not to be looking to use people to get what you want. Not looking to get a position, favor, money, etc. Now, how do we do this? Practical application, ready? Like, all things I just said, like, well, I don't do that in church. No one walks in a youth group and like, oh, you have gold and fine apparel. Sit over here. No one's done that. Here's a practical example. You're at work. First job. Your boss says to you, so when can you work? Every day. Every day, even Christmas. I will not spend time with my family on Thanksgiving. I will come in. Why do you say that? Do you actually believe your employer is like, yes, I expect you to work seven days a week for the rest of your life. You will never quit. You'll never fail to show up. You'll just be there every single day. You say that because you don't want them to say, ah, well, if you're not going to be that available, we'll choose somebody else. So you say certain things because you want to look good in other people's eyes. Instead, what you should say is I can't work Sundays, I can't work Fridays. Every other day, I'm good. Or at the very least, I can't work one day a week. It's called the Sabbath. If God himself rested for a day, worked for six, rested on one, I think we can use a break too. Number two, the reason why we don't say no is we don't think that God has anything better. So number one, we might be people pleasers, we just say yes to everything. Like, hey, can you do this? Can you do that? Well, yeah, sure, I can do everything. Number two, we don't think God has anything better. I think a lot of people sell themselves cheap because they don't believe the things of God are worth waiting for. Jacob and Esau. Esau had something really, really valuable. 
his birthright. He would inherit everything from his father because he was the firstborn. That was the culture back then. You're born first, you get all the inheritance. And he sold it, what was eternal, what was lasting for what was temporary, a bowl of stew simply because he was hungry. And because of that, they changed his name to Edom, which means red. The red stew defined him. Because you are whatever you worship. And what you worship will define who you are. Your life will take on the shape of whatever it is that you're worshiping. So what do you do? I'm a musician. So what do you do? I'm an artist. I'm a photographer. I am what I worship. And instead, we as the people of God can say no to some good things and some bad things because we know God is holding out some better things. The Bible says he will withhold no good thing from those that walk uprightly. And we need to say, you know what? What is temporary, what I see right in front of me, is nothing compared to what God has for me in the future. And I'm willing to wait for that. This relationship is not ideal. It's not the will of God. It's not what he wants for me. And so I'm willing to turn that down and trust God for the future. And number three, the third reason why we don't say no is we don't know God's will. We don't know God's will, so we say yes to everything. And because of that, you're embracing so many things that aren't your gifting, and you're exhausted. Once again, the whole people pleaser thing going on, you're just like, well, I'm doing it for them, not because I actually think that I would do a good job or whatever, and, and you're just so concerned about making that person happy so you gain an advantage in life or position or whatever. You do as you're told without asking yourself, is this what God wants me to do? The very first sin that was ever committed happens because Satan asked Eve, did God really say? Question the will of God. Did God really say that you can't eat of any of these, these trees? You can't have this tree right in front of you? You can't have the fruit? And Satan will always cause you to question the will of God. Instead, we need to ask the other question, which is, not has God said, but what did God say? What is it that God said to me? Because I want to embrace that with a joyful yes, knowing that this is what I was born and created to do. In conclusion, tonight, there is freedom in saying no because you are embracing the greater yes of God's will. There's freedom in saying no to things because you're embracing the greater yes of God's will. One of the most difficult decisions I have every single day is not who I'm going to marry. It's not where I'm going to get a job, you know, in the future, where I'm going to live five years. One of the most difficult decisions I deal with on a daily basis is where am I going to eat? Many of you know I'm a helpless child. I guess I'm not a child anymore. I'm 28 years old. I can't use that excuse. But I can't cook yet. It'll happen eventually. So I need to ask myself, where am I going to eat? And the difficulty with that is there are so many options. On 516, if I'm working, there's pizza, 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 pizza. And there's like two other places in whether or not I'm in the mood for that. Like literally you have so many pizza places around. And so I'm always thinking like, do I want to drive far, 15 minutes, go to Panera, go to Chipotle, go to... I always ask myself this question and I'll sit there for like 15 minutes. And I'll have to ask other people, where do you want to go? And everyone else is just as indecisive as me. Or they make it more difficult. Like... 
Some of the guys will bring their own food. So it's just me that's eating out. And now I just feel guilty about what I'm doing because I'm wasting money buying things that I may not even want. So what I have to do is employ the process of elimination. Process of elimination. I say, I don't want pizza again. Great, I just eliminated six choices. 16 million choices, really. I'm not getting pizza. Okay, what is it that I want? Pancakes. Mmm, pancakes. I could like, yeah. So I have IHOP. I can go to Comfy. Well, I just went to Comfy the other day. The wait's really long, so I guess I'll go to IHOP. Process of elimination. And it helps me, helps me make decisions as to what I'm supposed to do by saying no to some things. And when you embrace the will of God for your life, and you know that you are specifically not called to do certain things, that frees you up to live out the calling that God has created you to do. We start off tonight by asking yourself, what are you living for? What were you created to do? And in part, how you find that out is by asking yourself, what are you not called to do? What is God definitely closing the door on? What is he saying no to? So that you can bridge that greater yes. The confidence of knowing you're stepping right into God's will is one of the things that can give us the greatest joy in life because we know we are walking with God. Just as Jesus himself said no to food for a time, saying, my food, the true fulfillment, comes from doing the will of the Father. And I pray that you would know that too.